You may think I'm not wearing a jacket up here today because last Lord's Day our air conditioning rebelled. That's simply not the case. I just left the house this morning and forgot to grab it. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. I know by the title of the sermon you might be thinking, well, this looks like an, an Easter sermon. And it is. It's a resurrection sermon. We just happen to be finishing up the Gospel of Matthew uh, this Lord's Day in God's providence. So we will be looking this morning at the resurrection of Christ, at, at some of the you know, signs and wonders that surround His death. His burial and His resurrection. Matthew 27, and we're going to start in verse 50, and we're going to read down through the end of chapter 28. Hear the word of God. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go. Make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. 
He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this reads the word of our living God. And the people of God said, Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, loving Father, the one who has given us the greatest gift that mankind can ever hope to have, can ever hope to receive the gift of your only son Father, it's before you we bow praying that each and every individual here today father knows experientially the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ father we thank you for his sacrificial death we thank you that you did not leave him in the grave, that you did not allow him to see corruption, but that you raised him in power and glory, and through which we now have a glorious hope of the final resurrection at the return of Christ our Lord. Father, this is your word. Send it forth in your power. Cause it to accomplish your will for your glory and for the good of your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christ's passion is, is finally come to an end. It is concluded. He gives up his spirit into the loving hands of his heavenly Father, and he dies. The long day is finally over. This day for Christ was probably somewhere between 34 to 36 hours long. In it, he had celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He had implemented the Lord's Supper. He had taught his disciples humility by washing their feet. He had given them many promises and a rather lengthy discourse. He had labored in prayer for them 
And he had also labored in prayer in the garden for his mission, for the success of his mission. Remember, this is the culmination of what Christ came to this earth to do. Die for his people. He had been betrayed by one of his own disciples. He had been abandoned by the rest. He had been arrested, falsely accused, illegally tried, beaten, mocked, pronounced guilty, and then drugged before the pagan Roman governor, Pilate, where the Jews demanded that he be crucified. They chose a criminal, a low-down, murdering criminal to be released to them because they wanted Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, to be crucified instead of Barabbas. Pilate, even though he's warned by his wife, who said, look, I've had a dream that's been bothering me. Don't mess with this righteous man. He capitulates to the crowd as they scream for blood. Crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. And so Pilate ceremonially washes his hands and said, okay, his blood's not on me. Take him and do what you want. But before they led him to what Matthew calls the place of the skull, of course, the battalion of Roman soldiers who was Pilate's personal guard take him into the praetorium and they dress him in a purple robe, put a crown of thorns on his head and a reed, a mock scepter in his hand and they mock him and they give him false obeisance and then they beat him. And he's also scourged. And then, of course, they put his own clothes back on him and they lead him out to Golgotha where they crucify him, cast money for his clothes, you know, cast lots for his clothes, divvy up his belongings. All of this now is fulfilling Scripture. By the hands of evil men, the Lord Jesus is put to death by the plan of God. While he's on the cross, even the two thieves, the two criminals that are crucified with him are are reviling him. If you are the Son of God, come down from there. And I'm sure those guys are saying, bring us with you. Rescue us too. The chief priests and the crowds who had been screaming in, in the praetorium for Pilate to crucify Jesus follows him out there to this crucifixion. And they too mock him. He said he's the son of God. He said, if it's the son of God, come down from the cross. He trusts in God. Let God save him. And so the, the misery takes place. And we also looked last Lord's Day at the, the three hours of unnatural darkness. Which is one of the signs concurrent with Christ's death, his crucifixion. But at the moment of Christ's death this morning, we will consider some more of the miraculous signs that took place. Christ hung on the cross approximately six hours, three of which was unnatural darkness. And and we 
We believe that was a picture of the spiritual wrath of God taking place in the person of Christ as he paid the penalty for our sins. You see the nails and the crown of thorns and the whips, those those weren't the penalty. Because if physical death is the penalty, then everybody who dies goes to heaven. No. Spiritual death is the penalty. And Christ descended into hell when he was on that cross and paid for every sin of all of God's people. And at the end of those six grueling hours, he was able to once again have his fellowship with his father restored, his favorable fellowship with his father restored, when he says, it is finished. And then, at the end of it, as Luke records, Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The cry before that was what? My God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Notice the transition. He always called God his Father, but on the cross he called him God while he was suffering the wrath of God. But when it was finished, when the price was paid, he was once again restored, and he says, My Father. And that's where we pick up our passage here this morning. You know, it's my hope and prayer that we hear the gospel of count of the resurrection of Jesus as we hear it, that our faith in Christ Jesus will be strengthened. You know, the gospel is not just for lost people. The gospel is for God's people. Because it's by living gospel-saturated lives, it's, that's how we are shaped and formed into the image of Christ. So I pray that as we hear the gospel today, we will have a renewed uh, faith. Our hope will be strengthened. As we see the resurrection of Christ, we will even greater have a greater longing for the return of Christ. When those who are dead in Christ will rise from the grave, that great and final resurrection, when body and soul will be reunited. And the people of God will be with him for all eternity. I I pray that we will take heart to the Great Commission. Because only through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, through saving faith, does anyone have the hope of being on the receiving end of that great and glorious Resurrection unto life eternal. Oh, everyone will be resurrected, yes. Small and great. Men and women. Boys and girls. Old Testament saints. New Testament saints. Old Testament heathens. New Testament heathens. Every man, woman, child that has ever been on this planet will be raised. Some to eternal life, most to damnation. And it's only through the gospel that we have the hope of this resurrection unto eternal life. Today we will look at the miraculous events that surround the death of Christ. We will look at his burial 
and the futile attempts, if you will, of the chief priest to keep him there. We will look at his glorious resurrection and power and the appearances to his disciples. And finally, we will explore what is now called the Great Commission and hopefully see how we here at Emmanuel Baptist Church are or can be faithful in fulfilling that for our resurrected King. So we have, we're going to look first at these miraculous signs uh, that surround Christ's death. Matthew records several events uh, that took place that the other gospel writers do not. Okay. I think at least the three synoptic gospels, they record the tearing of the, temp the, the curtain temple. But Matthew's the only one that really talks about the earthquake and the and especially the tombs opening. But what was the, the first of all, what was the first miraculous sign at the moment of Christ's death? And I submit to you it was the manner of Christ's death. You see, crucifixion was gruel, grueling. It most of the victims, if they didn't die of massive blood loss or exposure, they died of suffocation. The manner in which they were nailed or tied to the cross made it impossible unless they were able to push up on their feet to exhale the breath. And after a time, they came to a point where they could no longer push up with their feet and they could no longer exhale. And so they suffocated. Jesus didn't suffocate. What does the text say? And he cried out with a loud voice. I think that surprised the Roman centurion and the soldiers. This, this man was not a man dying of crucifixion. He voluntarily, at just the right God-appointed moment in the history of this planet, breathed his last. He gave his life. He had said before, I lay down my life for the sheep and I take it up again. And so that's the first miraculous sign of his death. I'm sure these Roman soldiers had put many people to death by crucifixion. And so that, that caught their attention. I'm sure the darkness before Christ's death would have caught everybody's attention. Because it was an unnatural darkness. Now, his manner of death is miraculous. It's not like the others. The others had to be killed by breaking of the legs so that they would suffocate faster. There was nothing in, in, in Roman crucifixion that was merciful. It, unless you could say the breaking of legs was some, some form of mercy so that they would die quicker. It was still, I think suffocation is probably one of the, in my mind, one of the, the least um, desirable ways to go. But Jesus didn't die like that. As the scriptures prophesied none of his bones were broken they would look on him whom they had pierced remember that one of the soldiers pierced his side when they saw he was dead and, and it says immediately blood and water came out second was the curtain torn in two now I, I don't know this is maybe just me it could be just speculation but I think these signs are have specific audiences in mind Okay, I think that the manner of Christ's death really had those immediately close to him 
there at the cross. It had their attention. Uh, the curtain torn in two was, I think, for the religious leaders that had accused him and had condemned him to death. And then, of course, the earthquake, I think, was for everybody in the area. And we will see some of the reactions. So we have the curtain torn in two, interestingly, from top to bottom. And that makes this a miraculous sign. If this curtain was torn by wear and tear, uh, if it was just old, it would have more than you would think it'd have more than just one tear in it. Uh, if, if somebody did it, they would have had to tear it from the bottom to the top. If it was man-made, if it was a man that did it, but this was this was from the top to the bottom, signifying it was the hand of God. Now, some people see it as a form of judgment. Maybe as a precursor to, to the judgment that would befall the city of Jerusalem when the temple was completely destroyed. That may or may not be the case. But I think most everybody agrees that this was a sign to the religious leaders that their Old Testament sacrificial worship system is now obsolete. It took them a while to get that. It even took, I think, the church, the New Testament church, a while to get that. And that's one reason why I think the, the destruction of Rome, I mean, the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was, was necessary to further that point. Those Old Testament sacrifices all pointed to Christ. And when Christ died on the cross, that whole system was now obsolete. It was not necessary anymore. It was fulfilled. It was finished. And so I, I just it baffles my mind when you, you hear about these people that want the temple to be rebuilt and sacrifices to be started back up. What a slap in the face to Christ. He fulfilled all that. To bring that back would be an insult to God. Our altar now is the cross and it's empty. We don't have an altar anymore. It's the cross of Christ and it's empty. Now I know we have a spiritual altar in, in heaven where, um, where it says below where the spirits of the saints are. But we don't have a, a sacrificial system here now that we have to physically offer offerings on. This signifies that believers no longer have to go to a certain place to worship. Remember what Jesus told the Samaritan woman? A time is coming and now is when the people of God will worship in spirit and truth, right? It's not about going to Jerusalem. We have free, unlimited, and open access to God. As Pastor Tyler prayed, we come before the throne of grace. We don't have to go through another man. We don't have to bring a goat just to get God's attention. We have access to God, free, open, unlimited access to the God of glory through Christ Jesus, our high priest. And the curtain torn in two ushers in that era. 
ushers in the era of the new covenant, of, the, of a new way of worshiping God. Next, we have an earthquake. Now, this could be all, you know, you could say that there's people that argue, well, the earthquake actually caused the temple curtain to tear. I think the order that Matthew cites them is, is deliberate because he cites the curtain before he cites the earthquake. Then that doesn't mean they didn't take place simultaneously. But I think he cites that that particular way so that we wouldn't say it was the earthquake that tore the, the curtain. Okay. Matthew alone records this event. Notice the extreme violence of the earthquake. Now in the King James Version, it uses the same word for the curtain as it uses for the rocks, rent. But we, in our language, say torn and split. How much force does it take to split a rock? I mean, in some of our major earthquakes that we've recorded in this country we've seen concrete split we've seen buildings crumble right i've never seen an actual natural rock split just by the ground shaking now maybe i've never been i've never been at ground zero so i could say that but that takes quite some force to split rocks that was a violent earthquake can you imagine being one of those high priests that were out there making fun of this man. I'd have got real nervous when it got dark in the middle of the day. Because we looked at this last week. It, it wasn't uh, just some natural eclipse or something. It was supernatural. And then when Christ dies, the manner of his death. But then maybe they weren't at the temple. This took place during a time where there would have been a priest in the temple getting ready to um, offer up the incense so somebody would have been taken by surprise when that curtain tore and I'm sure that that individual would have ran out and told everybody all the all the other priests uh oh we got a problem but then you have this earthquake Luke tells us and all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle he called it a spectacle those who had had come out to be spectators of Christ's death. When they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Now what does that mean, beating their breasts? That's a, a sign of consternation, right? That's a, a, a sign of a troubled spirit. Something's wrong. We saw that before with the, the publican when he was had a you know repentant attitude. Now we don't know if this is repentant or not, but we know it was fear. They knew something was wrong. Something bad had taken place. <clears throat> now we don't we know from later on in the in the in the like in the book of Acts, some of these men were converted, but we see where the opposition to Christ remained. In our Bible study this morning, we saw that even the hard hearts of the unbelievers are not changed by natural disasters and judgment. But actually, judgment tends to make them rebel all the more. And then we come to the dead. 
raised to life. Matthew writes, The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now this, these two verses have sparked much controversy. Much controversy. And it's interesting that all the different answers you get, even from trusted, conservative, even reformed biblical scholars. Some argue that... <coughs> At the moment of Christ's death, these, these graves were open, yes, and these people came to life, yes, and then they just hung out somewhere for three days and then didn't go into Jerusalem until after Christ's resurrection. I would argue against that. <clears throat> but we don't know because Matthew, once again, is the only gospel writer that records this event. <coughs> It's interesting, John is the only gospel writer that records the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so, I would say those are two different, completely different types of resurrection. Lazarus, I think, was just a, a reanimation of the corpse. He was just brought back to life. He was not given a resurrection body. and He, he probably, well not probably, he later on died again. Okay? These, I think, were given resurrection bodies. And I think the key is in how Matthew says, and he puts this, I think, maybe even kind of just so we don't get the wrong idea. He mentions that coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, I think that's the key. Now, I could be wrong. I mean, some of these other Bible commentators argue that they were they came to life um, at the moment of Jesus' death. I would refer just to a few scriptures to argue against that. 1 Corinthians 15, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Colossians 1, 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. I, John Calvin and others suggest that what Matthew had in mind here is, is not just Christ's resurrection that brings new life for the believers. Okay. But it's also Christ's death. It, but Christ, by dying, makes life possible for, for believers. By Christ's resurrection now, that cements it in. That that's, okay, it's possible. No, it's going to happen. Okay, because Christ died for our sins, we can now be made alive in Christ. And so significantly, the tombs were opened at the moment of Christ's death. Christ died... So that we could be made alive. And then Christ rose from the dead. And I believe these saints rose with him. And entered the city. 
Now, what saints were they? We don't know. We're not told. And a lot of times we, we ought not speculate. I do agree with some of the commentators that say these were probably people that were recently deceased. Because, I mean, who would recognize King David? Did they have portraits back then or photos? I mean, so if these Old Testament saints were like way back, nobody would have recognized them. But if they were recently deceased, the people that were alive in Jerusalem would recognize them. And so that would be the sign, that would be the sign that Christ's death and resurrection is a miraculous event. And it is for the good and the life of His people. We are not told what happened to these saints. I don't believe that they were probably left on this earth too much because they were, I believe they were in their resurrected bodies and I believe probably when Christ ascended that uh, they were taken with Him to be with God in glory. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't think that they would have been raised to just to die again because the significance of Christ's resurrection is we are raised to life never to die again. And of course now, after these signs take place, now the Roman soldiers wouldn't have saw the, the, the temple. They might have saw some of the tombs open because we, we read in John's Gospel that there was a garden there which had tombs in it. We know that they saw the manner of Christ's death. We know that they saw that they felt the earthquake and they saw the rock split. And they may have seen some of these tombs open. And that causes them to make this decoration. <clears throat> Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, we're not told if this was a declaration of saving faith. That's another point of argument within commentators. It's possible. It wouldn't be the first time, would it, that a pagan Roman soldier showed more faith than the Jews come into my house and, and, and heal my servant. Well, no, no, don't come to my house. I'm not worthy to have you come in my house. Just say the word. I too am a man under authority. I can tell this word and go and this one come. And they obey me. So I recognize the authority. So you can just speak the word, Jesus. What did Jesus say? I have not seen this faith in Israel. It wouldn't be the first time a Roman soldier made a profession of faith. Now we don't know if this was a saving faith or not. But they recognized something spectacular. I don't even know if that's the right word. Something very important. Let's put it that way has taken place. Remember what Jesus himself had said about salvation. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Yes, it is possible that this Roman centurion and maybe even the soldiers with him were saved upon witnessing the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't need to speculate. If they're in heaven, they're there by God's grace, the same way you and I will be there. We are told next to Jesus' burial, a, a, a rich man, 
Joseph by name, who Mark tells us is a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom. What council is that? The Sanhedrin? The elders? The chief priests? The, the scribes and Pharisees? That, that council that probably was present at Jesus' trial. Because Luke tells us he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God, Luke 23, 50. John tells us he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. So we have this undercover disciple all of a sudden gets bold because we're told he boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. If he was a secret disciple before, he was no longer that now. And so he, he goes and we're told, of course, by John that, that Nicodemus was with him. He, he collects, he gets Pilate's permission. Now Pilate is amazed, right? Pilate is amazed. He's like, is he really dead? This quick? And he has the centurion uh, uh, confirm that. And he finds out that he's dead. He says, okay. And so he orders that the body be given to Joseph. And Joseph takes the body and wraps it in a clean linen cloth. He buy, it says he buys a linen cloth. So it's a new linen cloth. And of course, John's Gospel tells us that the costly spices that Nicodemus provided, 75 pounds worth of aloes and myrrh, which was the Jewish custom for burial. And so Joseph comes out, no longer a hidden secret disciple, but openly and lovingly cares for the body of Christ and buries it. We're told there was a garden there, and in the garden were tombs. And of course, Matthew tells us it wasn't just any tomb, but it was a brand new tomb that Joseph had made for himself. He cut out of the rock for himself, so it was his own tomb. It was new. That, that is also a fulfillment of Scripture. Not only did Christ's body, his, his own body, not see corruption, but he wasn't buried with corruption. That, which would have been, if he would have been put in a, in a tomb that already had other men's bones in it. But he was buried in a new tomb. And then, you know, it, it's almost, it's sad because of the rebellious nature of these men, but it's kind of hilarious because of the futility of their efforts. But the, the chief priests and these big muckety-mucks go to Pilate, and they ask Pilate, well, it, it kind of looks like they're making a demand. It's like, look, we heard this guy say he was going to be raised from the dead on the third day. And we know that that's impossible, right? I mean, come on. Even though they had, some of them had witnessed Lazarus being brought forth from the grave on the fourth day, 
So they tell Pilate, they say, look, we're worried that his disciples are going to perpetrate a fraud. They're going to try to deceive the people by stealing his body and claiming that he's risen from the dead. Praise God, it's not just a claim, right? Because Jesus wasn't just spirited away somewhere, taken right back to heaven, and and we all just have to accept by faith he's alive. No, he appeared to quite a few people. Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 15, what, over 300? Quite a bit. 500 maybe, yeah. But, but, but see, these, they're worried about the rumors. Look, he said he was going to rise from the dead, so if his disciples steal his body away, they can take it somewhere else and bury it. And then they can go around saying, he's risen from the dead. And of course, they called him a fraud, didn't they? They said the last fraud will be worse than the first. And so Pilate says, you have a guard. He's probably speaking of the temple guard. I don't... I don't know. I don't think that the Roman soldiers were, would have, were involved and for several reasons. But it's probably a temple guard. He said, you have, a, you have soldiers. You, you make it safe. And so they went and they put a seal on it, which usually meant taking a, a span of rope and either clay or wax and, and fastening <coughs> one side to the rock, one side to the, the wall, and putting the seal on, on the, in the clay or on the... Wax, so you could tell if it was broken. If somebody would tamper with it, the seal would be broke, right? Kind of like what we do with envelopes. We seal them. And they place their guard there. Which brings us to chapter 28. And the futility of their efforts to keep Jesus in the tomb. We read in Acts 2, 24... God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. All the Roman soldiers and all the legions of Rome couldn't keep Christ in the grave. All the powers of hell and all the demonic forces and all the loss of this this worldly empire could not keep Christ in the grave because it was impossible Impossible for death to hold him. Because he was the spotless Lamb of God. The wages of sin is death. And he was sinless. And even though he died for the sins of his people, death could not hold him. And so he was brought forth. Matthew's gospel account doesn't give us a lot of information, does it? Usually, well, I've done this in the past. I've read through the harmony of the gospels when we have our sunrise service on Resurrection Day. And it kind of gives us the big picture. It pulls all the gospels in together. I'm I'm not going to rehearse that for you here this morning. It is interesting, though, that Matthew records. Who does Matthew record Jesus appearing to? Which all the Gospels do. Jesus appearing to first. Women. Now, in their culture, women were insignificant. Women were basically second-class citizens or property of their husbands. They weren't 
credible witnesses in a legal sense. But notice who it was that actually followed Jesus to the cross. It was these women that had followed him from Galilee. And so I think it was only appropriate and right that Jesus appears to them first. And this also gives his disciples another chance to to exercise their faith because we're told in several of the gospel accounts and the women told them that Jesus was alive. What did they say? They took it as idle tales. They didn't believe these women. They were just talking. Matthew doesn't really give us any details of Christ's appearance in Jerusalem except for his appearance to the women on the road. Although we know by the other gospel accounts he appeared several times and several places to to his disciples in Jerusalem. Matthew records that he appears to the women then he cuts right to Galilee. And probably for that scene in Galilee we would go to what? John chapter 21, right? Because the disciples then are in Galilee. We're told here, however, that there are two groups of people that left the tomb with news. Two groups. One group is the women. The women are taking the news that the angel had given them and are following his instructions to go back and tell the disciples. They have mixed feelings. Joy at the news of Christ's resurrection. Fear of the supernatural. They were just in the presence of a a being, an angel. And, and, and the, notice the description. Like lightning, clothes white. Would that frighten you? If you met somebody like that, it would frighten me. I think it would frighten anybody. Because we are not supernatural beings. We're not... We're not angels. We're not spiritual beings. Like I mean, we're you know we have bodies. We we're confined to time and space, whereas angels are in a different realm, a different I don't want to say plane of existence, but they're not like us. Okay. <clears throat> so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, "Greetings." And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. What is significant about this is two things. He appeared to the women first. <coughs> Excuse me. And he accepted their worship. Another testament to the divinity of Christ. All the, the angels we see throughout scriptures where people had fallen down to worship said, No, don't worship me. Worship God. He accepted their worship. The second thing that's significant is that they took hold of his feet. Now, why is that significant? Well, he wasn't some aberration. He wasn't some spirit. He had a physical body, which is important for the resurrection. Because we know that we, when we are raised on that day, we will have physical Bodies. We're not going to be some spirits floating around for all eternity. So, he accepted worship and he had a physical body. And he instructs them to go tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. 
But, of course, I think we have these other gospel accounts where he had to actually appear to them in Jerusalem because he knew of their, their weak faith that they didn't believe these women, and unless he showed himself to them, they wouldn't go to Galilee. Makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, if you tell me to go somewhere that he's waiting for me there, I'm not going there if I don't believe you. Why would I waste my time? But we're not told of these other events by Matthew. These other, we know that he appeared to the eleven, or excuse me, ten, in the upper room the first Sunday evening. We know that that first Sunday he also appeared to Peter. We know he appeared to Mary Magdalene by herself. We know he appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. All these different gospel accounts of Christ's appearance. And we were told that he appeared to them again to when Thomas was, was present to calm Thomas's doubts, to, to assure Thomas that yes, what these other men had said were true, what these women had said were true. But we have another, another group that, that left the tomb, probably just as hurriedly, <laughs> with news of their own. And that's the group of soldiers. Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. These soldiers were then bribed to spread a lie. The, the, you know, it's, it's ironic here that these, these chief priests were... Their charge was that the disciples of Jesus would be spreading the lie. And yet they bribed the soldiers to spread the lie. Because even at the... I mean, the soldiers were eyewitnesses. They were... What does it say? They became afraid and were like dead men. In other words, they fainted or they fell out. Or they just fell on the ground quivering. These, these tough soldiers... And yet they accepted the money and they perpetrated the lie of the chief priests. His disciples stole him. And it says, and that is told among the Jews to this day. Upon the writing of this gospel account. And then we have the end of this gospel. Jesus meets with his disciples, the eleven they were told when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. You know, maybe that's Matthew's account of the, the disciples not believing the women. Or of Thomas. We don't know. We just know that he says that some doubted or some hesitated to believe. This just shows you that they had weak faith. But I, I, I will tell you this, weak faith is better than no faith. And so what does Jesus tell them when he, when he sees them? He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. <coughs> the Apostle Paul <coughs> agrees with this statement of Jesus when he writes, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the, heaven, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9-11 through 11. <clears throat> The late J.C. Ryle wrote of this authority, Quote, 
Christ is the one who has the key of death and hell. Christ is the anointed priest who alone can absolve sinners. Christ is the living waters and who alone we can be cleansed. Christ is the Prince and Savior who alone can give repentance and forgiveness of sins. In Him all the fullness dwells. He is the way, the door, the light, the life, the shepherd, the altar of refuge. Jesus said of Himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega and I would submit He's everything in between. He's all in all. It is with this authority that Jesus then sends forth his disciples as his personal representatives, as his personal delegates, um, ambassadors, if you will. It is with this authority that Christ is building his church even to this day. So Jesus commissions his disciples to to spread the gospel. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Go and make disciples. How are disciples made? Well, it's not by the sword, at least not by the sword that's not the, the Bible. It's not through force. It's not through conquest. It's by the preaching of the gospel. Who are we to preach this gospel to? All nations. Or as Mark records, to all the world, to the whole creation. The Apostle Paul writes, How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Preaching the gospel is how disciples are made. Again, Paul writes, For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Preaching the gospel is how disciples are made. But Jesus, he didn't have some universal idea of Christianity. You know, I'm a Christian, I don't need the church kind of mentality. He didn't have that in mind. His church is not some universal church, although God's universal church does exist. His idea was that he sent his disciples forth to plant local congregations. And we see how this takes place and takes shape in the book of Acts as the missionaries go out and they they appoint elders and deacons and, and all these different congregations. That's how the church of Christ is manifest in this world. Local congregations. We are not members of some mystical, universal, spiritual body. Now, at the return of Christ, we will be all one body. And all these local congregations will be united. But it will be a local body. And the location will be in the presence of Christ. How can you make a disciple of somebody that doesn't 
want fellowship. So you preach the gospel. People believe and repent. And then what? They're baptized as, a, as an outward sign of the inward cleansing by the Holy Spirit. The washing and the regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And they identify with Christ through baptism, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. It is a public statement that says, I identify with Christ. I belong to Christ. And then what? You go off and do all, go off on your own then, right? No. And teaching them. Where does the teaching take place? In the local church. Now I know in our day and age there are many, many parachurch organizations that just go off and do their own thing. Saying they're doing the work of God. And they might be doing good things. But they're not doing it biblically. It's the local church that sends out missionaries. It's the local church that sends out church plants. It's the local church that disciplines, that guides, that teaches, that preaches the word. That trains up the, the, the people of God so they can be fit for ministry. I'm not talking about pulpit ministry. I'm talking about Christian ministry. It happens in the local church. God has given His means of grace through the local church. Baptism. The Lord's Supper. Corporate worship. Fellowship. Accountability. But baptism is not the end of it because we, we are to teach all that God has commanded. We are to teach from the full counsel of God's Word. And finally, we have Christ's divine promise. And I will be with you even to the end of the age. Just a closing, closing thought or two and we'll finish. I don't want to go too far over time here. How can we here at Emmanuel Baptist Church fulfill this great commission? How can we be obedient to our resurrected King? To our risen Savior? Well, as individuals, maybe we can't go across the ocean, but we can go across the street. We might can't go around the world, but we can go around the block. We can share our faith with our co-workers, our neighbors, our family members. We can go out and hand out gospel tracts to complete strangers. We can do that. But more importantly, the Great Commission is fulfilled within the confines of the church. Because as a church, we can support missionaries with prayer and financial help. We can hopefully, one day, our Lord willing, Emmanuel Baptist Church will be able to send forth a missionary family. Or hopefully we'll be able to send forth several families to plant a church. Now, just out of curiosity... Our congregation here is represented by people that live in six different counties. Six different counties. Now, I looked this up, and I don't know how accurate it is, but in the city of Jessup alone, how many churches do you think there are? 58. In Jessup, this small town, 58. Now, how many church congregations do you think are in these six counties? And how many of them are confessionally reformed? 
two. Two. One in Long County, one here in Wayne County. So don't look at the numbers of how many congregations are out there. We have a need to plant churches. It would be lovely if we could plant a church in Pierce County, uh, Glen County, Long County. Well, there's one in Long County. Plant another one in Hinesville, and in Liberty County, in Tattnall County. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we could send out families and plant churches? We don't ever want to have a mega church here. That's not scriptural. Look what happened when Jerusalem got up over 3,000. They got persecuted and sent out. The biblical norm is to plant new churches in new areas so that new people can hear the gospel and come to saving faith in Christ. Can we do that here in Emmanuel Baptist Church? That should be our prayer. We know our Savior lives. Death could not hold Him. He is alive and He is reigning and He's in charge of His church and He has given us something to do. Are we doing it? Will He return and find us faithful in that? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we praise you and magnify your holy name that Jesus is not dead, that he is alive and reigns forevermore, and that he is the head of the church, his people those whom He purchased with His own blood, those whom He laid His life down for. Father, make us obedient in all things, but especially in sharing the gospel and advancing Your kingdom. Would You do that through us, Father, for Your glory and for the sake of our King until all His enemies are made His footstool. In His holy name we pray. Amen.